Awesome. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to week two in a conversation that we started last week that we are calling the Sex Talk. And if you were uh, with us last week, you might remember that what we've been saying in the series is we've been saying that this conversation, uh, the conversation of sexuality, is one that's not a new one. And so we're really not starting a new conversation today, but instead we said this, we said we're kind of entering into a conversation that is happening all around us all the time. And so last week we talked about this. We said that we live currently in what we call kind of a sexually saturated culture, right? You could tell from the bumper video that we just watched that sex is everywhere, that we are bombarded with messages about sex. The topic of sex is something that comes up all around us. It is a conversation that is happening everywhere. And whether you want to or not, you're going to find yourself immersed in it, right? And so you go to the grocery store to the checkout line, you're going to find yourself surrounded uh, by, the, by, by the topic, by the issue, the conversation of sexuality. Uh, when you go on the internet, you go on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or YouTube, you're going to find yourself bombarded with sexual images, with sexual opinions, with sexual thoughts, with sexual messages. It's everywhere. This conversation is happening all around us in the workplace, at school, on and on and on and on. So we've been saying that in this series, we're not really starting a new conversation, Probably the best way to say it is this, that we're entering into a conversation that's already happening all around us about the issue of sexuality. What we said last week is this too. We said that the topic of sexuality in our culture, um, there is nothing subtle about it. That this conversation is not being whispered, it's being shouted. And there's uh, many opinions that we, we see and hear and a lot of different, uh, different takes on sexuality that we are bombarded with. And so we've been talking about that a little bit. And because of that, we said last week, we said what might be surprising to some of us is that God, in the midst of all of this sexually charged culture and the sexually charged conversation that's happening today, that God, rather than simply condemning that conversation, and rather than simply dismissing himself from the conversation and remaining silent, we said that God is actually eager to speak into that conversation. And we said that, man, and, and the reason we, we, we said that was because when you go to the Bible, it becomes pretty clear to you very quickly that God is not reluctant to talk about the issue of sexuality. It shows up in the Bible often, and in some places, it shows up the Bible ex explicitly. And so we said that even though some of us might be uncomfortable talking about sex, God isn't. Um, God brings it up in the Bible often and explicitly. And so because of that, we said that God has a lot to say about this topic. That God wants to speak into this conversation with all these other voices that are competing and are yelling about sexuality. What we said we want to do in this series is that we just want to hear from the voice of God. We want to hear what he has to say about sex and listen to his take on it. So that's what we've been trying to do in this series. Last week, in fact, if you were with us, you might remember that we ended our time together by, by I gave one question for everyone in the room and I gave one challenge. This was the question I left you with um, after we talked last week. I said this, I said, if you were misusing your sexuality, if you were misusing your sexuality, would you want to know? And that was the question I asked last week. And then I followed it up with a challenge. And some of you might remember this. I challenged everyone, whether you believe in God or whether you're still investigating God, regardless of where you are, I challenged you to pray. And I said, I just want you to pray this. This is the only prayer I want you to pray through this series is God, I invite you into my sexuality. We said for some of you that might be awkward, that might be strange, it might sound forbidden, but we wanted to challenge everyone to pray that prayer. God, I invite you into my sexuality. And so today as we continue in this series, of course, we want to hear the voice of God. And so why don't we start here? Why don't we start uh, with just some prayer? Let's talk to God because I know this can be a tense conversation. This can be an awkward conversation, especially if you're here with your parents, right? That's very awkward. And so why don't we just talk to God and pray together? In fact, why don't we do this? Why don't we all pray together? 
um, out loud together. God, I invite you into my sexuality. Why don't we pray that out loud? And why don't you grab the hand of a person next to you real quick? And uh, we'll go ahead and do that. Now, some of you guys did it. I'm totally joking with you, man. I would not make you do that. That would be, you see some of your faces, man. No, how about this? All right, how about I'll pray and you keep your hands to yourself. All right, we'll jump in. So, so let me pray for us. And then I want to ask a favor for those who follow Jesus um, right after I'm done praying. So let me pray. Father, we want to hear your voice on this issue. God, we hear so many voices, so many competing, screaming voices on this issue. And God, we want to hear your voice. We invite you into our sexuality, Lord, as individuals and as a church. We invite you into this area. Father, we pray for healing. We pray, um, Lord, that you would bring us to a place where we could see you through, um, through our sex. And so we pray you lead this conversation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just ask a favor. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, would you do me a favor? Would you just take a moment? I'm just going to leave it quiet for a second. Would you pray for me? Um, This is not the easiest topic to talk about, and I just know uh, that I need a good level of diplomacy. I also need a good level of truth. And so just, would you just take a minute? Would you pray for me? And then I will get started. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. And so, uh, so this week, or last week, I should start with, if you were with us last week, you might remember that we started this conversation looking at a very simple but a very profound truth as it relates to sex. And this is what we said last week. We said that God created sex. We went back to Genesis chapter 2, and we saw the very beginning of marriage and sexuality as God designed it. And we said that's a very simple truth, that God created sex, but it has profound implications. And so we looked at four different things, uh, four implications of what it means that God created sex. So just as a review, last week we said that because God made sex, that means that sex is from God. In other words, what we said last week is we said because God designed sex, that means that sex was God's idea, that it wasn't an accident, that sex wasn't something that came as a result of human rebellion, that God was not surprised by sexuality, God is not embarrassed about this topic, God knows that it feels good, God made it that way and he designed it that way. And so last week we said we need to first start by just saying, man, sex comes from God, it's from him. The other thing we said is this. We said, because God created sex, that means that sex is good. Sex is good. And so we said that, man, everything God created originally was intended to be good. And the fact that sex appears in Genesis chapter 2 in a pre-sin world before sin even enters the scene reveals to us that sex originally was designed by God to be something good. And so because of that, our official position on sexuality as Grace Church is that we think sex is good. We're pro-sex. We like sex. And and we want you to have sex the way that God wants you to have sex. We like that. And we think God likes it too. And you see, people oftentimes think that Christianity, um, that Christians are very kind of repressive sexually, restrictive sexually, that sex is all about procreation and that there's no other meaning for it. And we're just saying that that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that no, sex is really good. In fact, I would argue that Christians don't have a low view of sex, but Christians have the highest view of sex because we believe that it's from God. We believe that God is the one who created, that it was created to be good, that it's spiritual in its nature, and that God made it that way. So we talked about that last week. We said sex comes from God, sex is good. We also said that because sex is created, that reveals to us that sex by nature has a design. 
that sex has a design to it, that if God created something, that means that he had a purpose, he had an intention in mind, a meaning when he created it. And so because of that, we said that the primary concern that we need to have, the primary question that we need to concern ourselves with as it relates to sexuality is not what do I want, not what do I think, not what do I believe is going to be the best way to fulfill myself sexually. We said the primary question that we need to pursue is how did God design sex What is the meaning of sex according to God and how can we live according to that purpose? So we talked about that last week. And then we said this, we said the last thing that Genesis chapter two reveals to us is that sex as God created it is extremely powerful. And so we talked about that last week. We said, man, when you look in Genesis chapter two and you see Adam and Eve come into a committed marital relationship with each other, the Bible says that they become one flesh. The two of them are naked and they feel no shame. And we looked at that a little bit in the original language. And we said, when the Bible explains that sexual union um, creates oneness, we said that is a profound thing. That spiritually speaking, there is a spiritual, emotional, and a physical oneness that takes place in sex. We talked about that all last week. And we said that God likes it that way. God made sex to be an incredibly powerful expression. But we also said this. We said, all of us know that the more powerful something is, that the more dangerous it is when it's misused. And so God doesn't hate sex. God loves sex. It's good. But God hates the misuse of sex. Not, not because God hates us, but because God loves us. God doesn't want to see us hurt ourselves. He doesn't want to see us hurt other people. And you guys know as well as I do that the more powerful something is, the more dangerous it can be when it's misused. And so because of that, we've been in this series trying to hear God's voice and asking the question, if God created it, then what's it for? How did he design it? Why did he make it? And how can we get back to the original design that God had in mind as it relates to sexuality? So I just encourage you, by the way, if you missed last week's conversation, you can go to um, our website. You can check out our app. You can download the podcast, subscribe subscribe to that if you want to, and listen to those previous conversations um, and kind of catch up that way. But this week, as we continue in this conversation, what I want to do today is I want to talk about another aspect that the Bible teaches us about sexuality. And for some of you, this might be brand new information, and it might sound extremely weird, all right? And I'm just going to warn you about that. But let me summarize where we're going to go today in one statement, and then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking that one statement. Okay, here's what I want to try to communicate today, is this, that not only is sex from God, Okay, that is to say, not only is sex created by God, which we talked about that last week. This week, I want to talk about this. Sex is about God. Sex is about God. Not only did God create sex, but God created sex with a meaning and a purpose. And the meaning and the purpose of sex is God. Now, now I know that sounds really weird. And some of you, that just that sounds like a really bizarre thought. Let me say it another way. That God created sex, and within sex, the meaning in which God wanted to um, expose in our sexuality, the mystery that God wants to reveal in our sexuality, the illustration that God wants us to get a hold of is something about himself. That sex reveals something about God to us. Now that, for some of you, I understand, sounds so weird. And for some of you, if we're just being honest, you maybe register that as a dirty statement. When I say sex is about God and it's supposed to help us understand God's love for us, for some of us, we're like, that just sounds wrong, man. Talking about sex and God and that relationship. And some of us, we just register that as a dirty statement. And let me tell you why I think that may be. 
Okay? I think that that might be the case for some of us who feel like this whole conversation is forbidden and feel like this whole topic makes us kind of uneasy and the whole thing seems kind of dirty. The reason I think that is is because I believe sex has become so, has become so degraded and has become so soiled and has become so perverted in our culture that for some of us, we cannot even fathom how God and sex can even be associated with each other. They just seem like they're completely incompatible because sex has become so degraded to us. And let me il- illustrate to you what, what I mean another way. So I have a cousin who's a Marine. And uh, I remember he was telling me about one time when he was on this mission. And he was explaining the circumstance to me. And basically, before he was deployed on this particular mission, he and his wife had their first son. So they had their first baby, they had a baby boy. And um, of course, everyone knows that when you have a baby, that first year or two, you're just caught up in changing diapers. That's just a big part of your existence. So you're changing diapers all the time. And so my cousin was doing that. He would change his son's diapers. So his son would mess himself, he'd clean him up. And like pretty much all parents who are in this phase, he would use baby wipes, right? So his son would mess himself, he'd use a baby wipe, he'd clean up his son and those type of things. Now, if you guys are, have been in the diaper season recently, you probably remember that, that baby wipes kind of have a smell to them. And depending on the brand that you get, sometimes they kind of smell like baby powder or something like that. They just have a very distinct smell. Well, my cousin told me that after a year of, of changing diapers with his son, he got deployed on this mission with the Marines. And he said, well, this mission was just miserable. He said, we marched all day in sweltering hot heat. And he said, and the worst part was we'd be exhausted, we'd be tired, we'd be sweaty, we'd be dirty, and we had no showers. So the way that these Marines would clean themselves is they would use baby wipes, right? And so my cousin told me this story. He said, we had walked all day, man. We were exhausted. We've been marching this whole time. And he says, after we were marching, it came time to clean up. And so I grabbed the baby wipes and I started wiping myself down. And he says, I caught a whiff of the baby wipe. He's like, and it was so strongly associated with a dirty diaper that I, all I could smell was a dirty diaper. And he's like, and it just activated my, my gag reflux and I got sick all over the place because when I smelled it, all I thought was, oh, dirty diaper. You know what I mean? And, and, and here's what he was telling me. He was saying, man, that smell was so strongly associated in his mind with that, with a, with a soiled diaper that, that he could not dissociate the two things from each other. Listen, I think the same thing happens with sex. And, you know, we talk about sex all the time and in our culture. It is so degraded. It is so convoluted. It is so soiled that the moment we bring it up in the church, a lot of us are like, oh, no, 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 that's a yucky thing. We don't talk about that here. I just want to tell you that if you feel like this is a forbidden conversation, something we shouldn't be having in the church and that sex is about God and that registers is dirty, I just want you to know that God wants to heal us from that. As God created this, it's a good thing, and it's become a perverted and distorted thing in our culture. God wants to restore that. And what he created for good, it was intended to be for good. And so our hope is to hear God's voice in this conversation. So sex is created by God. Sex is all about God. Sex is all about God. You're like, tell me what that means. So let me show you what I'm talking about. I'll show you a passage in Ephesians chapter 5. You don't have to flip there. I'll actually put it up on the screen for you. We're going to look at several different passages today. And so I just want to look real quick at Ephesians chapter 5. So here's what's going on in Ephesians chapter 5, just a little bit of context. So the Apostle Paul is writing in this passage, and he is writing um, about married relationships and about sexuality. Okay, so that's the context here. The Apostle Paul says something really fascinating in verses 31 and 32. Here's what he says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, 
but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, I want you to catch what he says here. Just two verses, but they're really important. If you notice the first verse, verse 31, it's in quotation marks. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and two will become one flesh. Now, what's all that about? Well, what he's doing, if you were here last week, you might remember, what he's doing is he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. And last week, we talked about this. We talked about how Genesis 2 reveals to us God's invention of marriage and sexuality. The Bible says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. He will be united to his wife. We talked about how in the original Hebrew language, that word to be united literally means to cleave. It means to make an absolute commitment of faithfulness. It's marriage. That's what it's talking about. And so we see the invention of marriage. But then it goes on to say, so for this reason, the two will become one flesh. And Genesis 2 goes on to say that they were both naked and they felt no shame. And so what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about marriage and he's talking about sex. And he says it in quotations. But then notice what he says next. because This is wild. Look what he says. He says, this is a profound mystery. What's a profound mystery, Paul? Marriage and sex, profound mystery. Look at this. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, that is a crazy statement that Paul just said there. Here's what he said. He says, you want to know what marriage and sex is about? Marriage and sex is about God. It's about Christ, and it's about the church, and it's intended to help us understand something about God and to help us understand something about the church. That's why God made sex. See, some of us think that we shouldn't talk about sex in church. But ironically, the Bible tells us that sex is about the church. That it's supposed to help us understand more about God and his love for those who follow him. That's what sex is all about. And like I said, I know that sounds really strange. But basically what the Bible is telling us is that inside of our sexuality, God has stamped a spirituality. That that sex is intended to be a divine window that helps us to peer into the character and the love of God. That's how God has created sex, that there is something spiritual stamped into our sexuality. It's a mystery. And I know that sounds philosophical and vague and abstract, but but let me just tell you that I believe that whether you're a believer in God or not, or you're trying to figure that out, I think all of us know this intuitively. We know that there is something stamped spiritually inside of our sexuality. And here, here's, here's what I mean. Think about it this way. If you ever look at the way that we talk about sex in our culture, did you ever notice that the words that we use often are spiritual words to talk about sex? Just consider music. Right? I was, this week, I was looking at a bunch of different songs, but the most popular songs about sex in our culture. Let's just face it. Most songs today that are like in the top 10 charts are about romantic relationships and sex. But did you ever notice the words that are used in those songs to talk about sex? It's crazy. Let me just show you one example. I was going to show you three, but for time's sake, I'm just going to show you one. Uh, This is a song by Bruno Mars. You guys are probably familiar with it called Locked Out of Heaven. Here's what he says. Never had much faith in love or miracles. Ooh. (laughs) Never want to put my heart on the line. Ooh, but swimming in your water is something spiritual. Ooh, I'm born again. I'm born again every time you spend the night. Ooh, and then watch this. This is crazy because your sex takes me to paradise. Yeah, your sex takes me to paradise and it shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long, for too long. Again, because you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long, for too long. Yeah, ooh, yeah, 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 ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, ooh, yeah, 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 ooh, right? 
Now, do you guys ever think about that, right? Did you ever, did you ever think about what he's saying, his words he's using? Between all the oo-oo's and yeah yes, right? What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, man, sex is, 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 to me, it's spiritual. Every time you spend the night, I'm born again. He says to her, to, to whoever he's saying to, when you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven. Your sex takes me to paradise, right? What is that? What's he doing? You notice all the language that he's using to describe sexuality. He is grabbing from religion and spirituality. These are biblical things, born again, spiritual. And it's not just Bruno Mars. All the songs about sex are stealing from spiritual words. They use words like forever. Forever is everywhere when it relates to sex. Ecstasy, paradise, heaven, prayer, spiritual. These words come up all the time when we talk about sex. Why is that? Because we know this intuitively, that inside of our sexuality, spirituality is stamped. And I know that because we don't sing this way about going shopping with somebody. Right? We don't do that. We don't, you don't ever hear a song where a guy's like, oh, baby, I saw you across the room and I just wanted to take you shopping, you know? Ecstasy in aisle three. I don't care if it's Bueller's or Mark's or Giant Eagle. As long as you got a coupon, baby. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, ooh, yeah, baby. <laughs> you don't see that. You don't see that anywhere. Why? Because going shopping doesn't have anything spiritual stamped into it like sex does. There's something uniquely profound about sexuality. And and we know that. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, you know what? You're right. The Apostle Paul looks at Bruno Mars and he says, you know what? You're right. There is a mystery. What is the mystery? Paul says, it's a weird mystery though. Here's the mystery. It's Christ and the church. That spiritual dimension of sex is intended to reveal to us something about God and something about the church. So, So having said that, let me just, for the rest of our time, I want to talk about three ways that sex is intended to explain to us Christ and the church. Three ways, all right? So brace yourself. Things are going to get awkward, all right? So here we go, but it's awesome. It's awesome. So here's the first one. Number one, the first way is that sex is intended to reveal the covenant love of Christ and the church. Okay, number one way that sex reveals Christ in the church is that sex by God's design is intended to explain the covenant love of God in the church. Now, what do I mean when I say the covenant love of God or Christ in the church? Well, here's what I mean. The word covenant, some of you guys might know, is a word that means absolute faithfulness. It is a vow of commitment in sickness and in health, better for worse, death do us part. And so in many ways, it's talking about a marriage relationship. And if you think about it, the Bible, we talked about this some last week, whenever the Bible talks about sex and it talks about God's design for sex, it is always within the context of a relational covenant, a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. That's God's design for sex as we see in scripture. And the Bible actually says, we talked about this last week, that anything outside of that marriage covenant between one man and one woman, according to the Bible, is what the Bible calls sexual immorality. It's the word pornea, where we get the word pornography. But what it's referring to is anything outside of the sexual uh, relationship. So that's premarital, that's extramarital, um, that's anything that's outside of the context of a committed relationship between one husband and one wife in marriage. And, and, and I know that if you've grown up in the church, if you've been around the church your, your whole life, or even if you're familiar with Christians, you probably know that this is what Christians believe. That's not news to you, right? You've heard this your whole life. Christians want to save sex for marriage. Christians believe that marriage is where sex should be had, not anywhere else. But did you ever ask the question, why? Why? 
Why do Christians believe that? Why is that important? Here's why. Because sex is intended to help us understand something about God. And the love of God, as we see in the Bible, is spelled out for us, is a covenant love. I don't know if you know this, but whenever the Bible speaks about God's love for us, the metaphor that it uses most frequently is that of a covenant. That God has committed faithfulness to us, even when we're faithless. With all of our flaws and all of our insecurities and all of our imperfections, when we enter into a relationship with God, the Bible says that God makes a promise to us and God never breaks his promises. He went all the way to the point of death on the cross. That's how far he went to keep his promises to us. It's a covenant love. Let me show you a couple verses that help us understand this covenant love. Here's one. Psalm 108 verse 8 says, God remembers his covenant forever the promise that he made for a thousand generations. God keeps his promises. God maintains his covenant. Here's what it says in Romans chapter eight of the New Testament. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See what it's saying? Nothing's coming between us and God. God is faithful to the covenant that he made to us. He is committed to his people. And and I don't know if you knew this, but the Bible gives a lot of metaphors to explain the love of God. One of the metaphors, it talks about how God is father and how we are his children to help us understand his love. Um, In other passages, it talks about how God is the good shepherd and we are the flock. The Bible says in another place, it says that he is the vine and we are the branches. There's all these metaphors that are helping us understand the love of God. But do you know what the number one metaphor in the Old Testament and the New Testament is for God and his people? Marriage, husband and wife. Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride. That is the illustration that comes over and over again as God wants to convey his love for us. Why is that? Because it's covenant love. It's commitment till death do us part. I am there for you. And the Bible tells us that sex is intended to be within that covenant because sex is actually a physical manifestation. It is a physical symbol of that covenant. Think about it. Sex communicates a lot, doesn't it? Sex, the act of sexuality physically communicates a whole lot spiritually, doesn't it? Sex communicates, for example, vulnerability. Vulnerability, transparency. I am laid bare before you, you are laid bare before me. All my flaws, all of my insecurities are in front of you. The things that I cover up around other people are exposed to you. And sex communicates that. Sex communicates that a spiritual reality in a profound way. Sex doesn't only communicate vulnerability. Sex also communicates acceptance, doesn't it? I accept you and all of your flaws and all of your insecurities. I embrace you. I take, and I, I expose myself to you and we embrace. It is a physical symbol of this covenant that we are making. It also communicates exclusivity, doesn't it? There's something about sex that was designed to be exclusive. And we know this. This is why when someone shakes the hand of our spouse, it doesn't bother us. But if they did something sexual, it would destroy us. Why? Why is that? Because it was designed to be something exclusive, an exclusive intimacy between a husband and wife. It communicates oneness, Physical, spiritual, emotional. We talked about all that last week. And so because of that, God says, no, sex is a symbol. Sex is a picture. It's a physical outward picture of an inward commitment that you've made. And so because of that, whenever you take sex and you pull it outside of marriage, you're actually lying to somebody with your body. 
You're telling them something with your body that your commitment can't follow through with, right? Um, the great philosopher Iceman in the movie Top Gun, which uh, I'm totally dating myself here, but he said, I don't know if you guys remember this, but Iceman had a great line. He said to Maverick, and he said to him, he said, your ego's writing checks that your body can't cash. You guys remember that line? That's a great line. Your ego's writing checks your body can't cash. What the Bible tells us is when we engage in sex outside of marriage, listen, our bodies are writing checks that our commitment can't cash. The Bible says you're lying to someone because you're, you're, you're communicating with your body something you can't follow through with, right, in sexuality. One of the things that broke my heart this week, I, was, uh, I spent probably too much time reading through song lyrics from different, more popular songs about sex in our culture. And I'll be honest, it, was, it broke my heart. It was a little disturbing. And one of the things that broke my heart the most, there's some songs that are just off the walls crass, but a lot of them are just, they're just talking about sexuality. And, and oftentimes this is what they say. They'll say things like this. I just want to show you how much I love you. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to express with my body what my words can't say. I want you to show me that you love me, right? And, and come on, baby. You know, and there's always the oohs and ahs and there's and those kind of things. But what broke my heart about it was you could see right through it when you're reading these lyrics. You know, it's all about you, baby. Tonight's all about you. Whatever you want to do, I want to show you my love for you. And I actually just made that up on the spot. I'm pretty good. And um, I want to show you my love, baby. But you can see through it because these, these guys that are writing this song, they don't give a rip about commitment. They just want to engage in sex. It's clear. It's clear. Listen, let me just tell you, if you're a single person in this room, especially if you're a Christian, if you're dating someone right now and they're pressuring you for sex and they're telling you, if you loved me, you would do this. Baby, our relationship is just in that place. Show your love to me. I just want to show you I love you. I just want to show you I love you. Listen, if that's the case, if they're pressuring that on you, you need to kick that person to the curb. Because, listen, I'm just telling you, in the Bible, if someone wants to show you love, sex is secondary, not primary. The primary way that we show love to someone is a commitment. That's how. Girls, you want to know how a guy shows you how he loves you? Here's what he does. He leaves his father and mother, which means he moves out of his parents' basement, right? Gets a job, gets some responsibility, desires to lead you spiritually, puts a ring on your finger, stands up in front of an ordained minister and makes a vow in sickness and in health till death do us part until we get old and we grow, we grow old together. I'm there for you. And the Bible says that then and only then can your body make a commitment, can your body write checks that your commitment can cash? Only then. It's, it's, sex is not a primary way of showing love. It's the secondary way of showing love. It's supposed to accompany a commitment. And I'm just telling you, when I was reading these songs, I was like, no one's singing about commitment. They're all singing about the physicality. No one's singing about commitment. I didn't hear one song where someone was like, girl, I saw you in the club and you were so fine. And I thought to myself, in 40 years, you're not going to be that fine, but I want to be by your side. Right? It's, not in, it's not in any song. Right? I didn't hear any, any song where a guy said, girl, I want to sleep with you tonight. And then if you happen to conceive, I can't wait to go to breathing classes with you. It doesn't, they don't give a rip about commitment. I haven't heard one woman sing about incredible one-night stand she had with a guy. And then how awesome it was when she gave birth to her son and the father wasn't in the room. No one's singing about that, man. And that's why God says, look, if you're going to do this, you better have a commitment that's going to back it up. 
This is the way I design. God doesn't want us to hurt ourselves, man. And we glamorize it and we idolize it and we glorify it. And God says, man, you're misusing it. It's intended to show a covenant love, one that says, I'm with you. I'm there, man. I'm by your side. Sickness, health, death do us part. I'm going to support you. I'm going to be with you. And God says, when you start engaging in sexuality that way, you're revealing something about its original intended designs, how God made it to be. Now, this, of course, when we talk about this idea of sex inside a covenant, it brings up a whole lot of issues, doesn't it? So things like premarital sex, things like extramarital sex, obviously, are addressed when we talk about this. But I think this also brings up issues of things like pornography usage. I think this brings up things like fantasy novels, things like Fifty Shades of Grey. The reason those things are so destructive, I believe, is because they, they go outside of the, 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 the one-on-one personal vulnerable covenant that God has designed for sexuality. You take your sex outside of that circle. You see, the reason that pornography is so destructive in marriage and even outside of marriage is because you start to fall in love with a fantasy and you become dissatisfied with reality. So you start to see these images of these girls who are photoshopped and so they don't look real. They, they talk in ways that isn't in line with reality. They act in ways that isn't in line with reality. And then you become dissatisfied with the real thing. And the Bible says, no, 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 sexuality is designed to be something where you are totally vulnerable, flaws and alls in front of another person and completely accepting of that, right? This is why fantasy stuff, Fifty Shades of Grey is so harmful because it creates dissatisfaction with reality. And so women are looking at their husbands and saying, how come you can't pursue me like Christian Grey does, right? How come you can't ride up on a white horse through a field of fog with roses in your hand, hmm? you know? And you're like, because, because nobody does that right? Why don't you look like the old spice guy? You know, whatever it is. And, 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 and it causes dissatisfaction in that. And God says, no, that's harmful. That's harmful. That's harmful. Right. And, and this is why, by the way, some married men, when their wife is sleeping in one room, can go in the other room and view pornography and masturbate. And, and, and the real thing is sitting over here. You see how, you see how distorted this becomes? And God says, that's not how I created it. It's in a covenant relationship and it's supposed to communicate that, right? So sex is supposed to help us understand God. It's supposed to help us understand his love. The first way is his committed love. Now here's the second way, all right? Number two, the second way is this. Sex is intended to reveal the self-giving love of Christ and the church. Sex is intended to reveal the self-giving love of Christ and the church, all right? Now, this is going to sound paradoxical to some of you, but it's so important. Check out this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what the apostle Paul says. Now, tell me, this isn't completely countercultural. Watch what he says. The husband should fulfill his marital duty. I don't know why I find that funny, marital duty. I don't know anyone who calls it that, right? I just want to go to my wife and be like, reporting for duty, you know? The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but she yields it to her husband. In the same way, a husband does not have authority over his body. He yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and only for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this is all about sex. And here's what the Apostle Paul says, which is radically different than what our culture tells us. The Apostle Paul says the key to sexual gratification, as God designed it, is not found in radical self-gratification. It is found in radical self-donation. 
It is I am giving myself to you and you are giving yourself to me. Now, again, we said that sex is supposed to help us understand Christ in the church. How is this like Christ in the church? Well, this has got Christ in the church stamped all over it, man. Think about it. What does the Bible say about Jesus? It says this, that he left his father in heaven. Remember Genesis? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Jesus left his father in heaven. He came to earth. He made a covenant to us. And then he gave his body. He, he died on the cross. He gave himself for us. And then what's the church's response according to scripture? Well, it tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we are now to live, uh, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices in view of God's mercy for us. You see what happened there? Christ gives himself for us. We give ourselves for Christ. And Paul says that's the way sex ought to be. Not pursuit of radical self-gratification, pursuit of radical self-donation inside of a covenant agreement and commitment that God has designed it. That's the key. See, we live in a culture that tells us, no, 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 no. You want to gratify yourself sexually, you pursue selfishness. You, you go after sex, sexual gratification in a radical way. However you want it, whenever you want it, with whomever you want it, that's, that's how it goes. That's the key to sexual liberation, sexual freedom, and sexual gratification. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. That leads to slavery. That leads to hurt and harm and regret. And the Bible says, if you actually want to find sexual freedom, it comes in a very paradoxical way. It comes through radical self-donation, giving of myself for the sake of another person. Now, this reality about sex brings up a lot of issues, so many. I'll mention a few. One of the big issues that comes up when we talk about radical self-donation is the issue of masturbation. And I'll just bring it up um, because when I was in, especially when I was in college ministry, it happens still, but when I was in college ministry, I got this question all the time. Uh, guys would come up to me and they'd say, you know, is it a sin if I, if I masturbate? Is that wrong? And, um, and I always answer, it's a challenging question because there's not one verse that you can point to. There's, like, there's not like an 11th commandment, you know, that says that you shouldn't do that. But I would always say, I'd say, well, I think there's a couple things here. Obviously, masturbation and pornography, pornography is out for the people of God. That's outside of the bounds of what God desires. And so they would say, well, what about masturbation on its own without the use of pornography or images or things like that? And I'd always say, okay, well, I think that there's a few considerations. And I would say, first and foremost, inside of the context of a married relationship, if a husband and a wife, from mutual consent, decide that they want to explore intimacy in different ways, I, I think that's a whole other issue. Right? I think there's actually precedence for that in the Bible. But if it is by myself, as a single dude, or without my spouse, I, I would say, man, I, I cannot find a way biblically, that you can justify that. Uh, first off, the Bible explains that sexuality is for self-donation, not for self-gratification. Masturbation, by definition, is about radical self-gratification. The other thing is, Jesus says, if anyone thinks lustfully of another person, he's already committed adultery in his heart. And I don't know if it's possible, I can't imagine that it is, that a person can engage in that act without having lustful thoughts. I mean, I can't imagine thinking about baseball and that being part of it. And so that's why I'm like, it's just, it comes up, this issue arises when we talk about the issue of uh, self-donation. Another issue that I think arises in this is the issue of sexual frustration within marriage. And um, man, I'll just tell you, when, when I talk to married couples who are struggling sexually, oftentimes what I find is at the root of that sexual frustration is a pursuit of selfish gratification. That usually is at the root of it. And so it goes something like this. I'll just give you a cliche example. It doesn't always work this way, but this is just cliche. The guy will come up to me and I'll say, we're having problems sexually. And I'll say, well, tell me what's going on. He says, well, she just never wants to do it anymore. 
You know, and I, I initiate and she doesn't reciprocate and she shuts me down. She's always tired. She always has a headache. She never seems to want to engage that way. And then I talk to her. Well, tell me what's going on from your perspective. Well, he's like a rabbit, you know? And he just won't settle down. And seriously, I can't even get a back rub for the guy without him expecting something sexually in return. Now, again, that's typical, right? And it's a cliche thing. It doesn't always work that way. But what I'm saying is, do you see what's happening there? Each party is primarily concerned with their own self-gratification, with pursuing their own interests first. And the Bible says, no, no, no. Sexuality is actually designed in such a way that it's not about radical self-gratification. It's about radical self-donation. So the problem with the verse I just showed you in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that it can be really abused. And it can be very abused. So I'll just use myself for an example. I could take this passage, 1 Corinthians 7. I could go to my wife armed with this passage and I could say to her, let me show you what the Bible says. The Bible says your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to me. So that means we get to have sex when I want, however I want, regardless if you're tired or your mood or if the kids were crazy. Doesn't matter to me because I got a verse. I got a license, right? And the problem with that is this. The problem is that by doing that very thing, I have ignored my call. My responsibility is to give myself for my wife. That's my responsibility. Jess could do the same thing, right? She could come to me and she'd be like, I got a verse, you know? Bible says that your body is all mine. And so that means that I'm gonna refuse sex unless you put a little more romantic investment into it. And so nudging me and just saying, wanna, ain't gonna cut it, right? (laughs) So we gotta, you gotta do work. And then maybe, right? And you see, she could do that. But the problem is by doing that, she's neglecting her part here in scripture. Here's the weird and ironic thing about this passage. Very, very strange. That my wife's, the reality that my wife's body is not her own is actually not any of my concern. That's her concern. My concern, according to this passage, is that my body's not mine, which means that I need to be, it's like a dance. You know what I mean? You're both figuring out, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? How can I serve you? Here's the crazy thing, you guys. When that happens, you will experience sex in a way that you didn't know was possible. It sounds so paradoxical, but the way to sexual fulfillment is actually not through self-gratification, it's through self-donation. And that's the way Jesus is with the church. It is this strange thing that the more blessed you are to give than you are to receive. It's unreal how it works in the sexual relationship. Another issue that that I think is brought up in this passage, honestly, is um, sexual exploration within marriage. Now, I won't say too much on this, but some people ask questions about what can I, now that we're married, like, What's okay? What's not okay? Um, in the con- you know, can we explore things sexually? Can we try different things in the bedroom? And I would just say this, two things to, to, on that. One is communication, and the other one is self-donation. Those two things, if you consider that, right? And so I think that if you're communicating and you're talking as a couple and no one's pressuring one party to do something that's uncomfortable or is, is something that's way outside of their comfort zone, if they agree on it and they're like, yeah, this is, this is something we want to explore together. This is kind of fun. If they want to do that, man, I think there's biblical precedence for that. If you're donating yourself, not pressuring somebody, but being kind to them in that way, I think, that, I mean, I think there's biblical precedence. We talked about this last week. Song of Solomon, man, you see between a married couple, some wild stuff. These guys use aphrodisiacs. They have sex in multiple locations, even outdoor sex. Commentators argue that maybe that there is the presence of oral sex in the book of Song of Solomon. And so what I'm saying is this, that, that in the married relationship, there is so much freedom. There's so much freedom with communication and with self-donation. 
right? There's one part in the book of Song of Solomon where Solomon looks at his lover and he says to her, we need to get out of town right now because I need to get in your garden. And you know what she, and that's in the Bible, man. And you know what she says? Grab the keys. We got to get out of here. Get a sitter, right? Because we got to go. And I'm just saying there's, there is so much pleasure and joy that's found in this according to what scripture teaches. The other issue I'd say is this. Um, if you're a single person, I know we're talking a lot to marrieds, but if you're a single person, you might be asking yourself, well, what can I do? What can I do? And here's the wild thing about that is I think that you are in a unique position. You can use your sexuality to serve others now. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but you can actually be selfless with your sex today. You're like, how? Here's how. If you're dating someone right now, if you're in a relationship with someone right now, when you purposely restrain yourself sexually and don't give yourself over to sex, you are being selfless with your sex and you are serving that person. Not only are you serving them, you're also serving their spouse. You might not be their spouse. They might have another person in the future. And by, re- by restraining yourself sexually, you are actually saying, I'm not gonna take something from you that belongs to your spouse. I'm serving you with my sexuality. When you decide to do that, you're not only serving that person, you're not only serving their spouse, but you're also serving your spouse. If God has it that you're gonna get married one day, you're serving your spouse today, right? By preparing yourself for that relationship later. And let me just say this with a, with a heavy heart, but it is true. If you, don't, if you don't think that your sexual experiences that you're having right now are not going to follow you into your marriage, you're wrong. And I'm not saying that in a condemning way. I'm saying that from experience. It's true. It comes with you. That uh, doesn't mean there's not grace. That doesn't mean that God's forgiveness is not applied there. It doesn't mean that God can't fix that. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying you can choose to serve today and you can be selfless with your sex now. And, uh, and it's an amazing thing if you do. It's weird, paradoxical, but sexual fulfillment is actually found in, in giving yourself and being selfless with your sex. And it reveals something about the love of God. So sexuality does a lot of things. It reveals to us the covenant love of Christ. It reveals to us the self-giving love of Christ. Here's the last one. And then I promise we'll be finished. This is it. Sex is intended to reveal the fruitfulness of Christ's love through the church. Sex is intended to reveal the fruitfulness of Christ's love through the church. And that sounds strange. So what do I mean? Okay. So um, one of the things about sex that, that we see is when you look at sex from a physical standpoint, from, a, uh, um, from the standpoint of anatomy, right? You can see that God has deliberately designed sex a certain way. He has between a male and a female. And our bodies, our bodies communicate that, the way that we're designed, the way that we're shaped. Think about it this way. In Genesis chapter two, the Bible says that God creates man first. He creates Adam. And then later he creates Eve. And so there's a period of time where Adam's by himself. The Bible says it's not good that he's by himself, right? And I can't help but wonder if in that time when Adam was just created, if, he, if, if maybe he looked at himself at some point and just thought to himself, why am I made this way? I imagine he probably looked at his hands. He probably thought, okay, that makes sense. You know, I need hands. They help me build stuff. They help me move stuff. I can feed the animals, you know. God gave me feet, perfect. I can walk, I can move, I got legs. God gave me a head, I can think, I can see, I can taste, I can smell, I can hear. All that makes sense. But at some point, he probably looked down and thought to himself, what is that thing? What's that do, right? And then I'm guessing he went to sleep one night and woke up and there was Eve and he probably took one look at Eve and he probably thought, 
Oh. That makes sense, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be crass at all. Please hear me on this, all right? I'm just saying there is something about the physical design of our bodies that communicates something about sex. We are a complicated and beautiful and masterful puzzle that God has put together. The, the mere fact that conception is a possibility in sexuality reveals to us something about God's created order in this, doesn't it? Right? And, and here's the wild thing. You may have never thought about this. And like I said, for some of you, this might sound like a dirty thought. Did you know that the way we're designed physically as male and females explains something to us about Christ and the church? Did you know that? Let me read a quote from you from a guy much smarter than I am, probably more diplomatic, a guy by the name of Christopher West, an author. He said this, this is why we are the bride and not the bridegroom in relationship to Christ. So, so you guys might know in the Bible, the Bible says Jesus is the groom, we're the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. Why are, we, why are we the woman? Here's what he says. Why? What do we see stamped into the nuptial meaning of the woman's body? Receptivity. The call to receive the gift. This is not passivity. Woman opens to receive the gift in order to conceive that gift and then to bear it forth to the world. We are called, every one of us, male and female, to be in this position of receptivity to the bride, of the bride, so that we can receive the gift of God, conceive the gift of God, and bear it forth to the world. Man, is it getting warm in here? That path, what he's saying is this. He's saying there's something about our physical design that reveals something about Christ and the church. Now, that's not to say that Christ and the church is sexual, but to say that sex is an illustration of Christ and the church. Think about it. We are the bride of Christ. We receive the gift of God. We receive his grace. The woman is one, her body is the one that communicates receptivity. The woman's body is the one that conceives. She's the one who bears child. We receive the gift. We conceive the gift. We bear forth the gift. It's how grace works. God's grace comes into us. God's grace revolutionizes us. God's grace flows through us. It's the gospel, man. It's the gospel. And if you have ears to hear it and eyes to see it, you'll see this is a beautiful thing that God has created. It explains to us this amazing relationship between Christ and the church. Now, of course, this brings up a bunch of issues too, doesn't it? So issues of things like same-sex attraction and homosexuality emerge when we talk about things like this. And the reason those things are outside of the bounds of what God desires is because they contradict God's design. They contradict the created order of what God made and the illustration that he wants to put forth to the world. Now, there's a lot more to say on that issue than we have time to say today. But, but here, here's all I want us to get this, this morning, is that when God made sex, he made it for a purpose. That sex was created by God. But look, sex is about God. It's supposed to help us understand something about God. There's a spiritual reality that's built into our sexuality. It's a mystery, Paul says. It's revealed to us in Christ and the church. Now, all that's fine and good. That's all awesome. But there's a problem. Here's the problem. Every One of us, I don't care what age you are, every one of us has strayed from what God has designed in sex. The Bible says that in Genesis chapter three, sin entered the world, everything went haywire, and we are now born sexually broken people. And so when we talk about covenant sex, and we talk about um, self-donation in sex, and we talk about the design in which God created it, all of us in some way or another have rebelled against that, that we naturally and intuitively are born, that we are, hot, we are hardwired against that. 
and in many different ways. It's different for every person in this room. And there's not one sin that's elevated over the other. You can't isolate one and say, that one's bad, but the rest of them are good. It's not true, right? And so for some of us in this room, we, we read God's design for sex, and we say, oh, that sounds really great. I am so far from that. For some of you in this room right now, you are immersed in chronic masturbation and pornography usage. You don't know how to get out. You're stuck, man. You're a slave. For some of you in this room right now, you are engaged in an extramarital or premarital sexual relationship with somebody. And maybe you're hiding it. Maybe you're not. Maybe it's in the dark. Man, you carry that with you. And, every, and all that I'm talking to you about right now is just, man, it's just burdening you. Right? For some of you right now, you're experiencing sexual frustration in your marriage. It's crippling you. You're not experiencing the intimacy that God wants for you in your marriage relationship, and you don't know where to go. You don't know how to get to healthy places. For some of you right now, you're dealing with same-sex attraction. You've never acted on it. You've never admitted it. For some of you right now, you're engaged, you, you, you are dealing with same-sex attraction, and you are acting on it, right? And, and all I'm saying is this. For all of us, we look at God's standard of what he wants for sex, and many of us are way over here, and we're saying, how do we even get there? How do we even go from here to there? And I just want to encourage you, if that's where you're at, man, you got to come back next week. And next week, I want to tell you about the hope that comes with Jesus Christ, that Christ wants to bring us back. He wants to redeem, and he can do this. The power that he has in this area of our lives. I'm just telling you, one of the reasons we're doing this series, you guys, is because this crap is happening in the dark everywhere, and no one's talking about it. And, there, and listen, some of us, we are enslaved to this stuff. God wants you to be free, right? So here's my challenge to you. Next week, I want to talk about an amazing hope of what Christ has done for you and for me and the liberation that he wants to have. So here's my challenge to you this week, all right? I, I dare you to do this. I dare you next week to come in with your baggage. Not literally, all right? Don't bring your ex-husband with you. But come in, <laughs> or maybe, maybe he needs to hear it. I don't know, so bring him. But come in next week with your baggage, all right? Because next week, I want to tell you what you can do with it. I want to show you where you can leave it. I want to talk about the healing power of Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in your sex life if you're willing to. Ask him, God, I invite you into my, sexu- into my sexuality. Let's pray together. God, uh, man, what a difficult conversation, honestly but powerful and important. God, the truth is that, uh, man, we are sexually broken people that oftentimes don't know where to go to find healing. And because sexuality has become so degraded, we believe that the church is not a safe place. Oh God, it's not true. We can run to you with this stuff. We can come to you. And Father, you can take this, you can transform it, you can revolutionize it, you can set us free. So God, we pray for it, man. I beg you for it, Jesus. I pray that you would let your people go. We live in a culture where sex is an evil tyrant that, that pushes us into the corners of darkness and hiddenness and demands slavery of us. But God, that's not your will for us. You want us to be free. You want us to live the type of sex that you created. God, the sex you created is awesome, man. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's life-giving, not life-taking. And yet, Father, it seems so out of reach because of the, because of the degradation that we've seen. 
And so, Lord, I ask you that you would redeem this. Redeem this in our church. Redeem this in our lives. Redeem this in our marriages. For the single person who's living in a bombarded world of sexuality, I pray for grace. God, help them. Help them to stand firm. And, uh, and Lord, we want to invite you into this area of our life and continue to speak to us through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.